0: You're listening to Don't Waste Water. I'll tell a story that I've actually never told before, which is... Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. Now we have the worst of both worlds in America. We have these 50,000 plus utilities. We have a lot of regulations. And the EPA can't possibly speak with more than a handful of utilities per day, per week, per month, per year. And so therefore, a lot of them just sort of are floating along as if... They have no supervision at all, so that the regulatory regime is theoretical, not practical. I'm your host, Antoine
1: Valterre, and in today's episode, I'm so glad to welcome Seth Siegel as my guest. I've
0: spoken in the US Senate and in the House, I've spoken at the World Bank, I've spoken I think four, maybe five times now with the United Nations. Seth
1: is a writer, lawyer, activist, serial entrepreneur, and an acclaimed public speaker.
0: I never wanted to write a book about, oh my God, the world is falling apart. I wanted to write a book about, oh my God, the world is falling apart, and here are the solutions. You might have read his Troubled Water
1: book, and if you haven't, you should, or his international bestseller, Let There Be Water, translated into 20 languages. If you recall the first episode of Season 2 of this podcast, Elengo Tevar, the CEO and founder of Nier, explained how the decisive kick to start his entrepreneurial adventure was reading Seth Siegel's book, Troubled Water, What's Wrong With What We Drink? Ever since, whenever I ask my guests what book was and still is influential in their water endeavors, both Troubled Water and Let There Be Water regularly come on top. So when I got to meet Seth at the Rethinking Water conference recently organized by Science Water in New York, I thought he might have won golden nuggets or two to share with all of us. And indeed, he even adds a bit more, as you'll swiftly notice. So without further ado, i let you dive into that conversation, but not without reminding you that if you like what you hear, I'd be thankful if you share it with your friends, colleagues or LinkedIn network. Because that's the only way I can further grow this podcast and convince speakers like Seth to further stop by my microphone and share the insights with all of us. So please do it, and I'll meet you on the other side.
0: For more information, visit gfps.com.
2: Hi, Seth. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I have to say, somehow, to me, it's a dream come true. I was looking forward to have you one day on that microphone. I had people on that microphone who said they are in water business and water entrepreneurship because they read your Troubled Water book. We also covered, by different lenses, how Israel is... A special country when it comes to water management which is also something you cover in your book let's there be water yes having said that given the title of the conference what is it that we have to rethink in water
0: you know water is so fundamental and so basic at our risk we take it for granted and one of the things that you do when you take things for granted is that you don't rethink paradigms in troubled water i made a number of different points one of which is that we're not charged the right amount of money for water. That's, that's to say we're not charged enough. Of course, indigent people should not have to be responsible for that. But for the general public, we don't pay enough. We have agreed to allow our water systems run by our mayors, which is a big mistake because they will never want to raise water rates as their publics will see it as a tax. Even if that means inferior water, inferior health of water, inferior staff or inadequate staff or inferior software, or old software, and likewise on the other part of the equation is that we just take for granted that whatever it was that was done previously is fine in the future. Now we don't take that approach in just about any other field. You can't think of another industry, transportation, education, the military, publishing, I mean, you name it, where there hasn't been revolutionary changes in just the last 20 years, and probably several revolutions in the last 20 years. And yet water, we tend to be doing what we were doing in terms of municipal water. We tend to be doing what we were doing 75 and 100 years ago. And in terms of agricultural water, lamentably, we're doing what we were doing uh, thousands of years ago. You gave that example of the flood irrigation, uh,
2: which is done still the same way nowadays than 5,000 years ago. Why don't we change?
0: You explain how we don't change, but why? Well, there's a number of reasons, but one of the key reasons is that farmers are not very well paid for their for their work and for their produce. And so therefore they don't have a lot of margin to invest in new technologies. And until now the reason why I'm excited about this company called Endrip, like new n hyphen drip DRIP. The reason I'm excited about Endrip is that it does it all. It's low cost, so therefore farmers of commodity crops like corn or rice or wheat or potatoes or cotton or sugar beets or anything like that can now afford to utilize this technology, whereas other technologies, center pivot irrigation, pressurized drip, were always too expensive. So it made more sense to waste copious amounts of water by using flood irrigation, which as you say was used five thousand years ago, than it does to update. But now that you have this inexpensive, easy to use, labor saving, yield enhancing, fertilizer reducing, carbon emissions reducing and hugely water saving technology i'm of the opinion that the whole world is going to figure out its way to use either endrip or a product like endrip there's an old expression build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door and this is definitively the better mousetrap to solve a problem it goes through several steps and
2: usually the first step is awareness you need to be aware that you have a problem you've been writing two books on the water topic and a third book on motivational quotes if I'm right yes your two water books are bestsellers New York Times bestsellers if I'm right as well. That means by the numbers you have raised the awareness yes could you could you measure that impact?
0: Well yes and no uh, first of all just uh, although I was a few books shy of making the New York Times bestseller list, with um, troubled water, I didn't actually make the best-seller list on that, so I just needed the full disclosure. But it has sold very, very uh, well. I and, liked
2: both books, but I prefer troubled water. If if I have to, you, you know, I,
0: I must say I'm told by most people that they prefer Let There Be Water, but my, I thought that Troubled Water was the more sophisticated book. Frankly, I, I thought, you know, I wrote it second, and I was by then I was more serious about writing. The research was different, and I, I thought also that Troubled Water was a more captivating book. And given the wild success of let there be water. It was now it's now out in twenty four languages. It's in sale in uh, I think fifty something countries. I was sure that troubled water was gonna, you know, be double that. And then when it wasn't, you know, that's the nature of life and publishing and whatever. So, but it's, it's totally fine. But to your question about measuring the impact, uh, you can answer that question a lot of ways. First of all, how is it, the impact on my own life is profound. Uh, I wrote these books really to educate myself about areas that I was troubled about. One was water scarcity, what effect it would have on the world. And the second was, why is America's drinking water not cleaner, healthier, safer, tastier? And when the books came out, it really launched me into a a very special place. There are a lot of people working in water. There are 1.3 million Americans who work in water, but there are not a lot of water people who are writers, and speakers. And so this got me invited to speak. I've now spoken close to 500 different audiences and of all kinds, universities, corporations, retreats, community centers, think tanks, and just about, I can't think of a format that I haven't been invited to or spoken at. I've been invited to speak at boards of directors, uh, foundations have asked me to come in and, and speak to their key uh, donors. I mean, so I've I've spoken at just a, a whole wide array of places. I've spoken to the U.S. Senate and the Congress, uh, the US Senate and the House. I've spoken at the World Bank. I've spoken, I think, four maybe five times now with the United Nations. So the impact of this has been in terms of my own life a complete change. I went from being a guy interested in some public policy issues to now. This is, when I wake up in the morning, this is what I do and what I think about. And it's been a very exciting gift I've given myself. I had a not-so-wonderful legal career. I didn't enjoy it, but I had a wonderful business career. After I sold my company, I didn't know exactly what I would do next, but then this happened. But that, I don't think, is what the, the thrust of your question is. I think the thrust of your question really is, what impact on society has the books had? And what I can say is that I think that it's been profound. In terms of the first book, I happen to know from people in the Israeli government who've told me that thousands and thousands and thousands of people from around the world now come to Israel to look for solutions to water scarcity, water infrastructure, water education, water communications, and a whole host of different issues. Now, some of that was going on obviously before my book, but this has accelerated that process. It also, I believe, has raised not only the awareness of water scarcity, but it has done something much more important. I never wanted to write a book about, oh my God, the world is falling apart. I wanted to write a book about, oh my God, the world is falling apart, and here are the solutions. Mm. And so it also, I think the other great thing about Let There Be Water, if I can say so, is, is that the reader doesn't come away depressed. The reader comes away feeling, oh wow, if we focus, if we push our governor, our government to do this, if we push our society to think differently, we have solutions and we can do it in time. In terms of troubled water, it had some impact and then COVID hit. We were getting some really great traction. I'll tell a story that I've actually never told before, which is I, I was invited when they came out, I was invited to speak at the White House to senior staff and I did. And then that led to them coming back to me and saying, could you come back and give us some solutions? And I took the 10 ideas out of the book and I massaged it for you know the current political uh, environment. And they were extremely excited about this. Then we decided, they, I, I was just nodding my head, they decided they wanted to have a water conference at the White House. And it was going to be in um, what ended up being three months after COVID starts. So it got canceled, obviously but we were on our way to having a really important national conversation about water quality, water safety, leaded service lines. It came close, but not a perfect fit. On the other hand, I regularly get letters and calls from people from utilities, from civic groups and so forth saying, we've read your book or I've read your book, and we're using it as a roadmap for what we can do in our community. So it's been very, very gratifying in that regard. I, I would say that the impact of troubled water has not been as deep as that of let there be water because it also calls for a lot of sacrifice and people don't generally uh, agree to sacrifice until they have to.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the, the 500 talks you've been giving and uh, I was watching people this morning during your keynote and when you reveal your number of the utilities in the US, yes, it still gives the same effect. People are like, wow. Not possible! Incredible! It's cannot be that much. I just did the simple maths, and um, I'm working in Switzerland. And Switzerland has six million inhabitants, eight million if you count the people traveling uh, from from the other countries, neighboring countries, and it has 700 utilities. So basically, the maths play out roughly the same than in the U.S. But there, it's fully normal. So, <laughs> do you think this eye-opening moment has to happen? I mean, everywhere in the words that maybe you don't have to be as extreme as the British with their 17 utilities, but maybe 52,000 utilities in the U.S. is too much. And any country with that ratio has a too high ratio.
0: Look, I I try not to be... Although I'd like to make believe I'm an expert on everything, I try not to actually pretend that I uh, know what I'm talking about. So what I know about Switzerland is that I love visiting it there. Every time I get a chance to go for business and sometimes for pleasure, I'm always happy I have done so. But I don't really know how the utilities interact in terms of quality control and so forth. It would seem to me that 700 utilities for 6 million people is probably not a very good idea although it's possible that some of those utilities are are just there to serve like a small mountain village community or something like that there, but i don't know
2: actually a country plan to close the, f- the smallest one and to concentrate into the biggest one so somehow to go in the direction which you suggest so probably <laughs> there's the logic in that
0: people are afraid of when i talk about this consolidation issue and i've talked about it in south america i was invited to speak to of uh, conferences and parliaments and, uh, around the world, and I remember I was at a, um, a government-sponsored event in Chile, and I was talking about the importance of consolidation, and the people there were very frightened by it. They said, what happens if this leads to monopolization, what happens if it leads to corporations taking advantage of us? And I said, why would, you, why would you necessarily think that it's all or nothing? And I believe the same here, which is, why do we think it's all or nothing? Why can't we just simply say we're going to have a rational number of utilities, and have them highly regulated why would that be a bad combination you have super smart rules and regulations for them you have metrics for them you have improvements that they must achieve and that at the same time you don't have so many that you can't do anything with your regulations so now we have the worst of both worlds in america we have these fifty thousand plus utilities we have a lot of regulations and the epa can't possibly not possibly speak with more than a handful of utilities per day, per week, per month, per year. And so therefore, a lot of them just sort of are floating along as if they have no supervision at all. So that the regulatory regime is theoretical, not not practical. 700 utilities is still a manageable number for a bureaucracy. If you have seven, I mean, the US Congress is 535 members of Congress. So, you know, you can communicate with all of them, you know, through leadership and through quick communications, and you can set up norms. You can't do that with 50,000. There's just, there's just too many, too many fall between the cracks, and that's my argument. If we had 700 in the U.S., I'd still say it's too many, but at least it would be a number that we could manage.
2: You mentioned the EPA in your in your troubled water book. You mentioned as well how the EPA hasn't regulated a single new compound in 25 years. How do you react to the EPA starting to move on PFAS?
0: Well, I think it's it's just wonderful. Uh, uh, you know, it's uh, we don't know where exactly they're going to be netting out. We don't exactly know what they're going to be demanding. But I think it's long overdue. And, but if it's one and done, if it's that and only that, then what we learned is that, once again, is that the only time the federal bureaucracy is going to move is when there's a hue and cry and that consumers everywhere are screaming about it. And that, I think, is not the right approach. I think the right approach is it should be a, a more proactive governance structure that says, what is it that are the threats to public health? And I don't want to necessarily say that we take the protective model of the Europeans, but that that we at least not agree to let our publics be the guinea pigs for the effect of different chemicals in our water. And that's what concerns me. I mean, you think it was just this year that we discovered PFAS was a problem? We've known PFAS is a problem for a while now, and yet we just let it go and let it go and let it go. And that's the model we have used is that things are unregulated or so lightly regulated that they're functionally irregul- uh, unregulated. And then you have the model of people get sick, and first, you know, you have, because it's industry is involved, I'm not anti business, I'm actually I'm quite pro business. But then you have industry has a vested interest in in denying any culpability, and then they'll buy off some scientists, and they'll stall, and they'll delay, and then they'll substitute one chemical for another, they'll say, oh, it's a new chemical, and it's not necessarily a new chemical at all. So I'm, I'm personally glad that PFAS is moving forward, but I would like to know what else they are thinking about, what is their second trick in their toolkit after they decide to regulate PFAS and decide what they're going to do in regulating it. You regularly speak about the price of water
2: and how we have to pay the real price and not subsidize water because that's a way to hide the real cost and then it leads to the mayor in charge. Actually, that is quite a controversial topic. I would be on, on your side, honestly, but on that microphone, I had the discussion several times with some guests who said, no, water is a universal right and we should have the first 50 liters for free or the first 150 liters for free. So I had different theories on that microphone to, to go even more to the extreme. And sorry for the sidetrack. I, I gave a conference in a university where I was explaining, I was trying to explain at my little level, the this economics of water. And one professor stood up and said, you're basically like, like the devil's <laughs> right hands or associates and, and water is like air and shall be free. So how do we bring the message across that it is valuing water to pay the right price.
0: First of all, it's a complete fallacy that water can be free. Water cannot be free. If you want to stand out in, in front of this building next time it rains with a bucket and capture all that water, that water should be free. That's yours, Feel good luck. But if you want to open your tap, who's gonna pay for finding that water, purifying that water, administering that water, transporting that water. How can that possibly be free? It can't be free. And you know what happens when it's free or tantamount to free? Know what happens? The water quality is awful, or the water supply is irregular, or the pipes leak to a degree of 65 or 70%. That's what happens when it's free. And we have examples from all over the world where it's functionally free, and also at the same time, demand is high and supply is low, or demand is high and quality is low, and the water is unsafe. So, so that's the consequence. That is the absolute immutable consequence of, quote-unquote, free water. Now, in terms of the first 50 liters being free, it's not free. It means that somebody who's buying the next 50 liters is, is subsidizing that water. It's it just economically, there's no concept of free anything because either someone is paying for it now or someone else is paying for it in an indirect way. So it's never free. Now, what I do believe is fair, equitable, just, moral is for us to say if people are indigent, they can't go without water. That would be unfair. And that in the same way that we subsidize housing or we subsidize food or we subsidize education or subsidize clothing, we should subsidize water. We shouldn't say that somebody should always have to assume that they can pay their own water bills because they may not be able to. And maybe they aren't getting 100% of their food subsidized, maybe they're getting 20%. So fine, give them a 20% voucher for their water bills. But once you get into the game of giving out free or deeply subsidized, as we know, from example after example after example, the quality goes down, supply becomes irregular, the infrastructure begins to rot, and then long-term, everybody suffers. You know, we all love utopian solutions, and they're very, very nice, but when you have to implement them in in the real world, you have to pay the consequences for the, for the unseen consequences of the very, very many bad things that happen from me, me or you or someone else deciding to be a do-gooder and think that somebody else will pick up the bill. It just doesn't happen.
2: You mentioned utopian solutions. In your speech this morning, you talked about a foreseeable future where we would have a faucet which gives us the water quality as we open it. Is that something that will happen? Should it happen?
0: I'll tell you, since I wrote Troubled Water, I've come to a new conclusion. I don't think it's going to happen. And so therefore, I think the new solution is going to be household uh, at the tap resolution of quality. In other words, that sooner or later, everybody's going to have some form of home filtration system. Point of use, your, point of entry. Your point of use, point of entry. I think probably right out of the tap is probably the smartest and safest. I mean, obviously, you don't want to have people taking showers with Legionella. Uh, water in it that could uh, that from the mist could get into their lungs. I mean, still want to have some level of quality. But I think that the 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 concept of fixing the water from the source to be so pure and fixing the pipes to be so pure, even though I endorse that idea, I would now re- would not write that in in, in troubled water, uh, part two, so to speak, or a second edition. I think it's too too Pollyanna-ish, too unrealistic, too disconnected from where the appetite for the public and municipalities are on the other hand I think it's ir- it's irresponsible to continue to have it the way it is so we need to have some type of a system and I've seen some that I'm actually very impressed by one in particular actually out of Israel as well that purifies the water and then because it is because it is taking everything out of the water except for the Hgo h2o you then have automatically the the healthy parts of water get added back in. And then you can also modify it so it can have it tastes like water in switzerland or it tastes like water in southern california or it tastes like patagonian water you know something like that and i think that 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 kind of solution ultimately is going to be the solution we, we see you know there's brita filters and so forth which are good but they're not complete solutions they do something but they don't they don't do enough and i think that that's good news a little bit better is better but i don't think that ultimately the right solution is going to be that i think the right solution is going to be a household system that's going to um, really purify your water and then provide you an opportunity to to add back in what you need. But isn't that
2: a way to run in the same problem we have today with these scattered utilities? Because we have this 51, 52,000 utilities in the US, but you have probably 200 million households in the US. So now if every single of these households has a point of use, point of entry filter, those filters work absolutely fine when they are maintained, right? but the day they are not maintained right, they are probably causing more harm than good. So we might be facing a similar issue, but on steroids.
0: Yeah, maybe, but it's also true that, you know, of those 200 million households, if that's the number, somebody in that household, in the vast majority of cases has a cell phone. And with technology, we could simply have it that you, you started your filter on this date, or you know on average how many how many times you fill your pitcher or you could even have the pitcher have a chip in it, an IOT chipper uh, chip in it so that we could know from the internet of things how often you have filled this pitcher and then you can get an alert saying, please remember to change your filter now. Now if somebody chooses not to do that, well that's obviously a bad outcome and that certainly could happen. but even there we could have a situation where I mean I'm speaking now very fancifully very, Jetsons-ish future, but we could very logically have a situation there where somebody comes knocking on your door and says, you know, we've noticed you're from our, from our internet ship. We've noticed that you haven't changed the filter. You know is there a reason for that i don't want to be too big brother if somebody wants to, to toxicize their system they should be allowed to do that but i think that 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 there are solutions that we could have without being too fanciful or too too crazy
2: set i have so many more questions for you but i have to be cautious over time so i hope i will have the opportunity one day to have you again on that microphone for a deeper dive
0: just ask
2: <laughs> i'll have Just two rapid-fire questions to close off uh, that that discussion. The first is, what's the most exciting project you've been involved in and why?
0: I I know this will sound cliche-ish, but how could there anything be the equal of falling in love with a woman and building a life with her and having children with her and raising those children to adulthood and just seeing life unfold before our eyes, you know? I mean, I, but I know that's not what you meant, but I, that, that is absolutely what I meant. I mean, that is an awesome project, <laughs> but, 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 you know, that's a project. Or that's just the, that's just the, the, the story of a, a life well lived. I have been blessed. If you're a believer as I am, I've been blessed by God beyond all measure. And if you're not a believer, I've been lucky beyond all measure. <laughs> but I grew up in a lower middle-class household. I had no advantages. I found myself at an Ivy League university at 16 years of age. I didn't know my way around anything. I'd never had an alcoholic beverage. My freshman roommate was 19. His father was CEO of a New York Stock Exchange company, and his brother had been in the Olympics. And, and my first time in an airplane, I was already a college graduate. So, so I come from with no, 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 no sense of where the world is or how things work. And I managed to have a variety of careers, most of them very satisfying. I've managed to have impact on my society. I've managed to have a, a long and loving, uh, still romantic life with a life partner, my wife obviously, <laughs> but if that wasn't clear. <laughs> you know, I have wonderful children and now I'm blessed with grandchildren. I've been able, because of my success, to assist charitable organizations and causes I care deeply about. How could one live a happier, better, more fulfilled life than that? I've written, I've written books. You know, I mean I could just keep the list going and, and so how, how could any of us dream of how could any of us think that that we could have be entitled to anything equal to that let alone more than that and last question what is the trend to watch out for in the water sector i think the trend to watch for most is going to be that we're going to see uh, the impact of digitization on our lives for good and for bad. I spoke this morning about my fear about a cyber attack and our water systems. I think our water utilities are extraordinarily vulnerable, and I am very worried about that. But I also think that as digital tools become cheaper and more ubiquitous, that we will begin integrating them into the way we operate our water systems uh, of all kinds, agricultural and um, and um, a household and that we're going to just find ourselves in a better place so I think that that's the, tr- that's the trend that water at long last will follow the rest of the world and uh, will be improved as a result of it
2: well said again I mean had incredible expectations for that discussion and you out <laughs> them so I'm really happy about that I'd be really happy to have a deeper dive with you at some points but for for today have to be reasonable and to let you have a good rest of the conference so thanks a lot
0: it's really a pleasure to be here thank you so much for asking
1: Thanks. bye bye this is it for another episode of the Don't Waste Water podcast I'd like to hand out a special thanks to Science Water for enabling it and if you enjoyed it make sure to give it a review on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from I don't know if I deserve 5 stars, but my guest surely does. Do it now, tell it to your friends, and I'll be back very soon with the next interview.